Welcome to Hunting Land. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Bay here with my co-host Clint Flowers, and this week's show is brought to you by MDH Foundation Repair. If your home or hunting camp is experiencing foundation problems, MDH Foundation Repair has the best solutions to fix it right and fix it right now. The problems you see are only going to get worse, so don't deal with inefficient, unqualified companies trying to sell you overpriced foundation repair products. The professionals at MDH Foundation will ensure you have a remarkable experience from the first meeting to the finished product. MDH Foundation Repair is redefining the construction industry, and their goal is protecting your most important asset, your home. Check them out at mdhfoundationrepair.com. Clint, I've talked to the guys at MDH, and they talk about that area that you sell in uh, almost exclusively and say that those are some of the worst soils for building foundations. They have this helical peer product that they actually put down and makes a big difference. You've seen a, a lot of funky foundations on hunting cabins and things like that over the years? Yeah, crack slabs and, and things like that are just a common occurrence around our area. Yeah, we're excited to have the guys at MDH sponsoring the podcast because that's that's one of the areas that they do work in is with hunting cabins and, and building in areas where the soils are not necessarily ideal for construction. So if you're having a problem like that or you're thinking about a building a, a cabin, you're thinking about your foundation, definitely give the guys at MDH a, uh, a shout. But Clint, I'm, this show this week is, is going to be interesting because when I was a, a really young hunter, killing does, hunting does was faux pas. I mean, you just didn't do it. You know, you had a certain group that just didn't do it, period. And then you had usually just a week or two that you could do it. And, and man, we just had so many deer when I was a kid. And you know, I've heard arguments for and against that. Um, I certainly enjoyed sitting and, and watching 20, 25 deer in the afternoon. And, and it was fun as a kid and it's fun to see deer, but we also had a, you know, really poor body weights. We had kind of inferior health of the deer herd. And there's just a lot of questions and a lot of, I don't know, old wives tales we're going to try to dispel on today's show right down to just simple things like, should you shoot a doe with fawns or you know, when should you do your doe hunting? And our guest this week is Dr. Grant Woods, and I'm just really excited to get the answers from him. What about you? How'd you grow up doe hunting? Same way. I mean, we took out a few every year. You know, at that point in time, we still had to use tags, and we didn't have quite the open season on them that we do today, but it was nothing for us to see 30, 40 deer a hunt, but we ran into the same issues. That's always a, a debate these days is, do you take them out? How many do you take out? How do you determine that? where do you do it? How do you do it? That kind of thing to do it without overpressuring the, the property and, and making it where you don't see any of those mature bucks that you want to see when you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to just hear what Grant has to say because he takes many mature whitetails off his property every, every year. His clients take a lot of mature whitetails and I'm talking about bucks and they kill a lot of does too. So there's got to be some rights and some wrongs and it's just going to be an interesting show. All right, Clint, this week's guest has probably heard and potentially argued over just about every topic there is when it comes to doe hunting and what's right, what's wrong, what what's the gray area. And it's funny, if you talk to 10 people, you probably get 10 different opinions. And my opinions and the research that I've read over the years seems to have changed a lot. And so uh, I'm just really looking to hear uh, forward to hearing what Dr. Grant Woods has got to say this week. And 
Grant, welcome back to Hunting Land. You know, for folks that don't know about growing deer, tell us a little bit about growing deer before we start talking about, you know, some of these doe hunting tips and tactics and, and uh, pros and cons and whatnot. Yeah, great to visit with you both. Uh, Growing Deer is just a, a web show. We make a new episode every week or more frequently. We have for 10 plus years and we've never missed a week or had a repeated episode. So we, I'm a wildlife biologist that likes to hunt. So in the non-hunting season, we're doing prescribed fire, planting food plots, whatever, improving habitat. And in hunting season, of course, I love to hunt. So we do that, and, and it's real. And we film this week, it's on the air next week, so it's real time. I think we've been blessed with growth just because we relate to what other people are seeing or doing. If it's scrapes or whatever, we're not showing a turkey hunt in November and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, just search on Growing Deer. You can find us about anywhere, Amazon, Roku, uh, Apple, of course, GrowingDeer.com, YouTube, all those things. Well, what do you think? I let, let's approach this from the standpoint of maybe a person who is just getting into hunting. And then I think if we approach it from that angle, we will, we'll speak to people all throughout the spectrum. Why do you need to start doe hunting? What do you think? Okay. Well, starting at that new hunter, gosh, it's a, let's have fun. Let's get some venison. I tend to think we hunt primarily to be a provider, to provide venison to us or our family or friends. And those are a great source of venison. The only time I would tell a new hunter not to legally harvest a doe of their choice is if that area just was restocked with deer recently. I'm not aware of any of those areas or something has happened where the deer population is very low. And let me define a low population. It's not how many deer we see. It's are there way more groceries than there are deer in the area? And I think the biggest arguments about doe hunting come from, well, I'm not seeing enough deer. But that's not a good way to measure it. We should manage any wildlife species by the habitat's capacity. And hopefully we're managing about 70, 80% capacity, not 110%, because that means animals are suffering and, you know, not in good health. But if they're just way more desirable browse species, and maybe you're in ag country and that's crop fields, or you're hunting in timber like I do, and that's preferred browse species, you want to find that balance where there's more quality browse than deer in the area. Grant, when I was a kid hunting in Alabama, we would sit on a food plot and see 20, 25 deer in an afternoon. And we're talking about a quarter acre to a acre food plot, not a, uh, a kill plot, as I would call it. Mm-hmm. Th- those deer would average body weight, 70, 80, 90 pounds, not big deer. They were, they were obviously overpopulated. For somebody who is hunting a piece of ground and they want to make that assessment, do they need a wildlife biologist to, to really understand? No, not, no not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, you wherever you are, you can figure out what the ice cream plants are. Pretty universal ice cream plant, let's say, you know, from Missouri East, not necessarily out in Nebraska or eastern Colorado or something like that. But it's, it's something a lot of people call catbrier or greenbrier or the official name Smilax. But those kind of heart-shaped little leaves and green vines that are kind of tough and really sharp needles, man. I mean, you get tied in your pants, you're going to rip a hole or something. It's it's odd, but deer love to eat the last six inches or the fresh part of that growth. And if, if you walk by a green bar plant and all the leaves are stripped and the end is bit off, you know, bigger than a, a wooden match, you know, it's a eighth inch or more, it's been chewed down. There's too many deer in the area. It's just automatic. Boom. No matter what else you see, there's too many deer in the area. So Not really, just one plant, but everywhere, everywhere you walk in the woods, you know, boy, green briars, woolly browse, and other plants, 
deer like to eat poison ivy. And boy, sometimes I'll walk in a timber for helping someone with a management plan and poison ivy's browsed up the tree, the leaves, not the vine, but the leaves. That was high as my head. I know automatically there's too many deer in this area. The really good plants better than poison ivy, they're already gone because the deer have wiped them out. So I just look at indicators and, you know, it's not an exact number. I, I kind of get tickled at some biologists say, boy, you need 32.5 deer per square mile or something like that. You know, the, you guys have had a lot of rain. We've been in a drought till recently. That number fluctuates. So you just kind of go by an, a longer average. And the, the two times a year you want to make sure there are plenty of groceries is late summer. We can be really dry in late summer. And late winter, even in the south, you know, plants haven't been growing a whole lot. So take an evaluation in February. What are deer eating in February? Not in May when it's raining and, boy, there's food everywhere. That's not an appropriate time to, to take an evaluation of how many good plants are out there. What about something like an exclusion cage, you know, in a food plot? I see a lot of guys saying, man, I don't know why my food plot didn't come up very good. And I look, mm-hmm. and I look out there and there's more tracks than there are, are plants. And I say, yeah. it's coming up fine. The deer are just not letting it get any, letting it get high. Yeah. The, there's enough deer scat out there to fertilize the whole crop. Yeah. Right. Utilization cages, some people call them exclusion plate cages. Same thing. They're excluding deer from browsing a small portion, you know, like a three or four foot circle of the plot. And that lets you see how high the forage would grow based on the rainfall and fertilizer, all those factors that determine forage growth versus outside where deer are eating. And I tell people if there's a 50% or more difference, so let's just say, you know, inside that the year food is is a foot tall what clover we what whatever you're growing and outside it's six inches or less there's too many deer that crop just can't keep up and when a, a crop keeps getting browsed on over and over and over it, it kind of damages the crop right it gives up the will to survive after a while so if you're you know you're losing too much forage to deer you need to reduce some does or improve more habitat you don't always have to have a big old doe harvest you may say well boys this ain't enough we're going to double our food pot capacity yeah i like that and i mean those are two really doable ways for just about anybody to go out and get an idea uh pretty quickly how much carrying capacity their their land has and are they exceeding it body weight just simple body weights take the whole weight so when you bring the deer into the skin and shed don't eviscerate it or gut it and and my bubba talk my talk uh, and for you more sophisticated people out there, we don't want to eviscerate the deer before we weigh it because people do it differently. Some people save the heart, don't save the heart, but take the whole weight. And you're knowing your neighborhood. Like if you told me, boy, our, our mature does only weighing 70 pounds, I'm going to tell you, you've you got to improve the habitat, decrease the number of deer, or do both at the same time. But if your does are, you know, depending on where you are, they're weighing 120, 150 pounds, you're probably kind of somewhere balanced in there. So body weights are just an indicator that don't lie. The problem with body weights are, let's just say, boy, you know, they look pretty ragged. Your food plots and native browse look pretty ragged. And then late summer become hunting season, there was a big old acorn drop. And you harvest a deer a month after hunting season opens up. Well, those does can put on a lot of weight on acorns quickly. So you have to take that in consideration. I'm getting these body weights, and this is the history of the habitat in this area. I'm going to go back to those negative effects. You were talking about those deer suffering. And also, what about the ecosystem? How, how is the overall ecosystem suffering if there's overgrazing? Yeah, so so there's actually several that I think maybe a lot of people may overlook. Let's just take this, for example. This is a real easy one. A lot of parasites that obviously, if you, you know, if you have parasites, your body cannot function at the full capacity. 
internal and external parasites. Ticks are an easy one on the outside. And large stomach worms, homonca contortus, but large stomach worms are real common in deer, especially in the south. And you can actually see them at the neck and eye if you take time to look. They're in a chamber in the stomach. People say deer have four stomachs. That's incorrect. They have one stomach and four chambers. And one of those chambers is called the omason, abomason, excuse me. And these worms are kind of hair-like. But if you look closely, you can see them. And one thing we use, and a lot of state agencies use, is you harvest some, some deer at a certain time of year and get into that particular chamber to stomach. And if there's 500 or less of those worms, large stomach worms, your deer, you know, you can have more deer. There's plenty of habitat. And if there's about 500 to 1,500, things are okay. Keep doing what you're doing. And if there's more than 1,500, you got to improve the habitat or decrease the quality of deer for them to be healthy. And, and the reason this works is, and this is true for a whole lot of parasites, the life cycle is, of course, they're in the deer, and either their eggs or live, whatever, go out the back end of the deer. And little bitty snails, not those big shells you find, but little bitty snails tend to eat these parasites or their eggs, and they work up the vegetation a little bit. So the closer to the ground deer are eating, the bigger load of these parasites they get. And, of course, if there's not enough food out there, as you mentioned earlier, they, they're doing what I call, you know, just browsing lip high. The deer eating as close to the ground as they can get their lips. And in that case, those deer are going to have a lot of parasites. So not only are they not getting enough quality nutrition, but their body's wasting resources trying to defend against these parasites. So that's just another indicator. And one of the problems of having too many deer, and of course, they're never going to express their full body weight, which means they're never expressed their full antler size for that area. You may not be growing an Iowa deer, but you can grow a great deer anywhere. And that's what happens when they, they don't have enough nutrition. They limit their genetic potential. And people, I hear this all the time. I'm sorry, one more thing. I hear this all the time. Boy, we got a bunch of spikes on our land. Our genetics aren't very good. Now, over there in that other county, boy, they killed big eight-pointer. They got good genetics over there. Well, there's no difference in the genetics at all. None, zero, zero, none. It's, it's nutrition or age structure, but it's one of those two. And the big problem with spikes, the biggest cause of spikes, the biggest cause is either two, two reasons. Fawns, which are on really good habitat, a fawn will get pregnant and have a young one. But it's always late in the rut, and a fawn's not a really good mother, so she tends to throw a spike her first year. That's a superior deer. If the mom was so healthy and doing great that it could have, get pregnant and have a viable offspring, that's a great doe. And yes, her first yearling's a spike, but he often, this is based on really good research with ear tags, whatever, can grow into a Boone and Crockett. That's why we never recommend shooting spikes, ever under any circumstance, period. Wow. Or the other reason they just don't have enough nutrition. This is a lot of a deep research that's been that's gone into this. You're talking about stomach worms, and and I've never heard that with regards to grazing closer to the ground. It makes a lot of sense if you watch a deer graze and browse through the woods. If they don't have to, they'd rather keep their nose up and their head up and graze yeah, at a high. Yeah, and they're and they're moving on when they're in the timber. They're you know unless you're in a corn pile or something, they're moving on. They're not necessarily sticking their nose where another deer just stuck their nose. They're not getting those parasites or diseases as rapidly. And if we go back, and I use this illustration a lot, we think about the buffalo herds. Man, they were constantly moving for a couple of reasons. One, predators, grizzlies, wolves were, were pushing them. Native Americans were pushing them. They're all predators. Or wildfire was pushing them. But just simply, you, you know, you take a herd of a million or two buffalo, they're trampling everything down, urinating defecate on it, and they got to move to get fresh vegetation. 
there was no ivermectin or no vaccines and they were very healthy because they were sticking their nose in fresh vegetation all the time because they were moving all the time. These days that, that brings to mind the CWD issue. I would imagine that having to go close to the ground or lip deep like that would help contribute to CWD problems if they exist in the area too. It, it does. Well, I mean, that's a political football almost as bad as what's going on in the rest of our nation right now, but <laughs> it's an important issue. So we'll just take just a short segue if, if it's okay and talk about CWD. Sure. And, and, and there's no politics here. Let's just look at bare bone facts. Illinois has had known to have CWD for over two decades, over 20 years. All right. And when they first got into that game, oh, we got CWD, what do we do? They did the common sense stuff. They, they told people don't put out mineral or bait piles or something, not trying to congregate deer where they're putting their nose in the same place. Certainly none of those little feeders have a little four-inch pipe. I mean, they're all salivating in the same place. Any human that did that would be sick quickly. And right across the state line, deer don't know state lines. It's not a fence there or something. Right across the state line in Wisconsin, they said, ah, we ain't doing any of that nonsense. This is nothing. And some of those counties right now have over 60% of the bucks standing alive today have CWD. That, that deer is not going to recover. 60% are CWD positive. Right across this state line where the state said, you know what, we're still going to have hunting and all this stuff, but we need to knock this population down just a tad and we're not going to bait. We're not, you know, not going to try to congregate deer. After decades, decades, their highest area, their highest hot zone in the whole state of Illinois is 3.1%. Most of them are less than 1%. So this is like data anyone can see. All these people that say CWD, there's nothing you can do to stop it, blah, blah, blah. That's just nonsense because we have decades of data, not one year, not a little university test. We're talking states and decades of data. So there's really no argument on what we should do for CWD. It's unpleasant. I'm in a CWD zone. I live in a CWD zone. My land, I hunt in the CWD zone. And when Missouri Department of Conservation came in said, Trophy Rock, to be really honest, was a big partner of mine. I liked it, 60 plus trait minerals. I liked the checks they wrote me on. You know, I liked all that stuff. MDC comes in and says, no minerals, no bait, you know, all these things. You got to reduce your deer population. And I'm a biologist. I'm going to play by the rules. So we did. And we've had one positive out of about 300 samples now in a five square mile around, area around me, one positive. So don't tell me doing these things don't work. That's just nonsense. I don't like it. And again, folks, I make a living on deer. I live in a CWD zone. It has impacted me, but it is certainly the best for the deer herd. Well, that's a whole new perspective. I don't think we've heard before. So good information. Yeah. And it brings to light. I mean, it makes you think, you know, a lot of the, especially a lot of the, a lot of states are now legalizing baiting. Which is always driven by political football, right? That's hunters putting pressure on the politicians in their state. That's not the state agency going, boy, this is the best thing for us to do. Yep. That's hunters putting pressure on politicians. Well, it just raises a lot of a, a lot of eyebrows, that's for sure. And it's good to hear you say that you've seen the positive effects of common sense strategies to reduce it. That's right there where you know you've already got it. Are you testing pretty much every deer you take on your property? Every deer we harvest off our farm, we have tested. The, the state here only mandates, they, they hope volunteers will, but they mandate the first, Missouri's not like Alabama or a lot of southern states. We have a very short, you know, uh, a week and then a weekend of rifle season. That's when the bulk of the deer are killed in these Midwestern states is their gun season. 
So they mandate areas like where I live that's a confirmed CWD unit. They've had a positive. When they, when they get a positive, they draw a five-mile box around that and call that a unit. It's not counties. It's you know pretty restricted, actually. I think Missouri's got a I don't again, I don't like it, folks, but I think they've got a proven plan. In Missouri, by the way, we've had CWD over ten years and our highest area is one point one percent. And then again, Wisconsin, okay. a lot of counties, does are thirty percent positive. Bucks are always be more because they're more social, right? They get nose to nose or nose to butt with a whole lot more deer. Mm. So the bucks are always gonna have a higher rate than does. Always. That's been shown in every state that does any kind of research. So Joe, it sounds like we've got a a whole nother show to get into with Grant, yeah. uh, CWD <laughs> prevention. Yeah, it'll it'll uh, it'll definitely fire some people up. I can already tell. Well, Grant, you're talking about just common sense practices that really for doe harvest. That's just another reason why you should. Yeah. What, we're, what we're talking about is why you need to start doe hunting. Is reducing the population helping? Just purely because that's less social interactions within the herd. And remember. We don't know how long, we being researchers, don't know how long CWD, the causative agent prions, last in soil. No one knows that, but we do know it lasts at least a decade, at least a decade. So an infected deer, a deer that has CWD, every time it urinates, defecates, salivates, it's putting a little hot spot on the earth. So if you let that, and plants can take those prions out of soil, pull it up in the plant, then a deer can eat the plant. I mean, this is a wicked disease. It should wow. never be ignored. Wicked, wicked, wicked. I would say this in public. If COVID was as bad as CWD, we'd, all be, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in big time trouble. Wow. But so because COVID, you know, it lasts, but it doesn't, you know, if someone breathes COVID, it's not 10 years later, you walk through that airspace, you're going to get COVID. Right. right. Or you eat so a, it's uh, just head a of broccoli totally different thing. somebody coughed on the ground. <laughs> you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got a bait side out there and I'm, I'm not anti-baiting folks. I'm just, I'm just explaining the facts here. You got a bait side out and 10 deer frequent that side. Let's just pick, pick a number. And they're, you know, and they're there for several minutes. And, and if you've ever been around a feeder that had been moved, but people where I manage projects that still feed, I only work with them if they're willing to move that feeder, you know, every few days to a clean spot. Because a lot of feeders I see around America, it's about a foot deeper than the rest of the soil around there. And it is covered with scat, covered. And if we could see urine, it'd be about a foot deep there. Well, any deer going there, is, it may not be CWD. It could be a lung infection or lots of things that deer get over. So humans don't really know what's going on, but it's certainly reducing their health. And it's just like the fire truck that all the kids at preschool want to play with. The little Johnny's got the flu, and he's playing with the fire truck, and then little Sally gets the fire truck. She's likely to get the flu. It's the same way with deer. It's not like they got some supernatural antibiotic system that protects them. They certainly have a better resistance than humans do, but you got a bunch of deer at the same area day after day after day, and one of them gets sick. Most of them are going to get sick. Grant, you were talking about how deer moves through the timber, and we're foraying off into some CWD stuff, but that's okay. This is interesting. You were talking about how deer moving through the timber and browsing through the timber. He's really on a mission. He or she's on a mission. They're just kind of picking up what they can get on the route to their next destination. If someone is in a baiting legal state and, and they're hunting over bait, would they be better off for the deer rather than having a centralized feeding area to maybe say broadcast that feed in such a way that the deer has to 
essentially quote unquote browse that feed. Like think about spreading something down a Sendero like they do in Texas. Is that, is there any research to show that that's better or is it just no baiting is what you really need to do? Boy, I don't know about research, but I tell people all the time, absolutely. What we do is tell people to feed the road. So like in Texas, if you've hunted in Texas a lot, they have a, a bumper feeder on their truck or on front of their truck or just hold a bag of shelled corn. I've seen drivers do this, you know, just the driver's got a bag of corn barely tipping out the driver's side window and he just keeps raising his arm a little bit and dumping a little bit more as it go, just trickling it. It's not turning the road yellow, it just trickles it. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever hunted in South Texas much, I mean, they're bait a square. You know, they're driving this little circle of brush country and bait it and stop and maybe even donut. And then when they drive it again, there's deer all over. And that's because those deer are conditioned just exactly like an ice cream truck. If you live in an urban area, there's probably in the summer, likely an ice cream truck. And if you ever pay attention, the same song plays in the same portion of the neighborhood every day. And that's because when the kids hear that song, they go run to mama and get a quarter or $5 or whatever it is these days and run out to the curb and get an ice cream. Well, deer, same way, if you're to feed legal state, and if you feed the roads out of same pickup, same transmission noise, or the same buggy, if you're using a buggy, you know, whatever whatever you're doing, you got your wife carrying corn, whatever, same scent, and you, every pick a day, Tuesday and Friday, whatever, you feed these roads, you're not turning it yellow, you're just trickling kind of like acorn. Well, the deer get really used to that sound, just like the ice cream truck. And then Saturday, you got some hunters coming in, whatever, and you do it again, you bet you those deer are coming. As long as you're not shooting out that buggy or shooting out a truck, they don't associate that with danger. They associate the danger with the humans. And you're bringing the ice cream in a vehicle. And that's the magic of South Texas. And I, again, I'm, I, I live in a non-bait state. It's not a big factor for me. But when I work in those states, the people that do this, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't necessarily want to ride around trucks shoot deer out of, that's not hunting to me. I'm not. You know, some people do, some don't, but I love getting in the truck or buggy and going on that feed route because you're seeing 95% of the deer on the property. I mean, they'll be standing in that road before you get there. They're conditioned like Pavlov's dog, and it doesn't happen overnight. It usually takes a couple months or so. And the same thing happens with feeders, and this is published research. All throughout South Georgia and South Carolina both have done scientific published and refereed journal research on this. And, and one of my favorite examples is South Georgia. That'd be some, I think it was PhD students actually from University of Georgia doing research there when the state, this is years ago now, legalized feeding or baiting in South Georgia. And these guys are going, well, we can add a little bit to our research here. And they were looking at deer harvest per unit effort or how many hours does the average hunter put in to harvesting a deer. And so then there's always the illegal baiting. I don't care what anyone says. I mean, my, some of my neighbors bait. I know I still because all of a sudden there's a bunch of turkey feathers right by next to my fence. I mean, the turkeys are just hanging in a small spot. I mean, it's so obvious. And I do. I call the game board and say, hey, old Fred over here is baiting again. And, and if I can get them to come over here, they write a ticket. I mean, it's just so obvious, folks. But anyway, they went from not baiting on the widespread. I'm, again, I'm sure a few people weren't playing by the rules to baiting. And the first year, boy, that harvest per unit effort decreased the effort decreased if let's and I, this is a facetious number because i don't remember the publication exactly but let's say it took five or ten hours on average that dropped to two hours wow because you're oh my gosh this acorn tree just keeps producing man i'm going here but in one year it just took one season deer got conditioned that there's danger where i find that yellow gold there's danger and every since then the harvest per hour has decreased 
That's interesting. And I've, I've noticed the same thing. Uh, you know, when I first started hunting in a, a baiting legal state, I, I grew up never hunting over bait, didn't really have a need to. And when I went to a baiting legal state, I found that it was actually ineffective for seeing deer in the daylight. Now I did have some success hunting travel corridors that were coming off of those bait sites and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's not the panacea that, that it's made out to be. That's for sure. I think people think that because they watch the shows from South Texas, and but they don't get, those people are hunting, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 acre ranches, 5,000 acre ranches, whatever. And there's just not much hunting pressure there. So deer do come in daylight. And there's also, this is a huge factor. Deer are genetically programmed to seek carbohydrates during the fall to prepare for the rut and winter, even in the South. So in South Texas, 70% of the native plants are legumes. There are not a lot of carbs down there. There's not, not many acorns in mesquite country at all. I hunt on a, a large 70,000 acre ranch down there. I pig on, I don't deer hunt, but I pig on down there. And to my knowledge, there's three oaks on that 70,000 acres. <laughs> there's just not a lot of acorns. And you put corn on the ground, and again, I'm hog hunting, and the hogs are used to getting shot over corn, so they don't, they don't do this. But the deer will about run you over getting to the corn because they, they primarily buck only harvest. The ranch hands will shoot a few does, and they're just not used to a lot of pressure on corn. And I mean, I remember last year getting out in the road, waving my hands and yelling at the doggone deer because they were eating up all the corn for the hogs could get there. <laughs> and the deer just stood there. They just stood there because they don't associate that with danger. Now, you do that in Alabama, and about three counties away, a deer smells you and runs the other way because those deer are on edge in Alabama versus South Texas. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Speaking of that, so we're jumping back to doe management. If you've examined your property, you're seeing the red flag that you mentioned in terms of the browse, body weights, things like that, and you've determined that you need to make an effort to reduce that population. You know, Maybe you don't have the opportunity to expand the the habitat to compensate for the herd size. So you're going to take the approach of reducing the, the doe population. How do you determine how many you need to harvest? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's not an exact answer. Everyone wants to say, well, two does per square mile or some number. Humans just love a concrete number, but there's not. So if you're in the mountains of Alabama up north and there's just not a lot of food to start with, there's probably not a whole lot of deer and removing just a couple of does per mile may make a big effort. And you're in South Alabama and, and this is typically what happens. It's a lot of it's pine country. And man, a few years ago, th this was a new pine plantation and there was briars and browse everywhere, everywhere. And then those pines grew up and everyone's having a good time. They're hunting, they're seeing deer, seeing a lot of deer, it's all good. And those pines grow just a few years and all of a sudden they're shading out. But the hunters don't really notice there's no groceries at ground level anymore. And they're going, oh my gosh, man, my food plots are getting eight to the ground or my average antler size. I just experienced this in East Texas. East Texas is pine country too. And guy hired me to come down there and help him with his property. He said, man, we used to kill some 180 inch deer. I mean, in their lodge, it was like, you know, walking in a Bass Pro's door. There was some whoppers on the lodge wall. I mean, whoppers. And now, man, they get real excited. They see a 150 and they may see one of those a year on a pretty big property. And it was 100% pine. I mean, there was a right away and some food plots, but pretty much 100% pines. And these pines were tall and needed thinning in the worst way. And we're riding around and he's wanting a magic answer. I mean, you know, he wants a magic feed or a magic seed. And, you know, he wants some magic. 
and he thinks I'm going to bring the magic. And I did bring the magic. I told him to start cutting trees like crazy and spray it with the herbicide to kill all the sweet gums because we had tall pine trees. And below those pine trees, it was a sweet gum layer solid. And it was like being in a cave below those sweet gums. There was no sunlight down there and no groceries. And the deer were just hungry. So basically what I'm hearing you say, Grant, is that it's like we talk about a lot on here. Everybody likes to ask, what's land worth per acre? You know, and the answer is it depends, you know, and it sounds like you've got to make an assessment and maybe even carry out a year of doe harvest and then see how you did. Is that a good strategy? It is. Well, what I tell people, start at a doe or two per acre. I mean, depending on how much land you're hunting, right? Not per acre, I'm sorry, for 100 acres or something like that. But even though if you're in a big club or something, God could be land, and you say, boy, our body weights are decreasing, or our average antler size per age class. It's not antler size, it's antler size per each age class. Can't compare four-year-olds and two-year-olds. They've been decreasing the last few years, not just one drought year, but the last several years. And you say, well, we've been harvesting about 50 does a year off this club. Well, if that's not doing it, then I would take 100 does the next year. I would double it and see what happens. Yeah, I'd assume community. Exactly. And, and I assume communicating with your neighbors, if you can, is always good because if they're taking a, a super aggressive policy on those and then you're taking a super aggressive policy on those, you could both hurt each other without. I, ne- I never, that I, I'm a huge believer in communicating neighbors. Deer co-ops is probably the best and least used deer management tool. Yeah. The best and the least used deer management tool is working with your neighbors in a positive way. But I never worry very much at all about overdoe harvest if people are hunting legally. I mean, if they got bait out, the deer are going to get really smart and only come at night. That's known, period. GPS caller known. Even if you just hunt like we do my land here, you start putting a lot of pressure on does, they become very difficult to kill. And I'll share this with y'all. I, years ago, I used to manage a lot of big properties, basically paid poachers. And we got a contract to manage 10,000 acres at Callaway Gardens, real famous golf area, just west of Atlanta over there. And the deer were eating their azaleas up like crazy. They're known for their azaleas, azalea parades, all this stuff. And, I mean, the deer were just mowing them down, like a quarter million dollars of damage a year of azaleas, literally. So they hired us to come in. We had permits. We could hunt at night and use a lot of nice toys and stuff. And our job was not managing deer. This was not a public hunting area or anything like that. Our job was to reduce the amount of damage to azaleas. And so we started whacking every doe we could. And, and again, we had permits and really fun toys. And boy, that first year, I mean, we were taking about a pickup load. I'm not trying to be gross here. And then the second year, we're still pretty good, but not, not near as good. And by the third year, we had to really hustle just to take a doe off there. Now, we didn't wipe the herd out. They were still eating azaleas. We knew that for a fact. But they become wise. And let me tell you how wise. So it's, there's a bunch of different golf courses there if you haven't been there. And the first year, we'd ride around at night in our pickup. And, and I love taking deer off golf courses because you know your yardage. Just for all the fancy scopes that were built in, <laughs> you know, range finder, like the burr scopes, whatnot. I mean, you know your yardage, man. It's cool. And then the second year, well, we're not doing too good. But we thought, boy, we, we're going to get a tool here. And I asked a golf course manager that hated deer if we could use his pickup at night, because they hear that pickup and the transmission every day. He said, sure. And we started taking a few more does because they just, they'd hear that truck coming. Even though it was at night, they just saw that's old Fred. It's no big deal. Right. But soon he got to where grand, I don't, I don't see deer anymore. They're eating his values, but I don't see a deer. They got scared of the sounds of that truck. That's how conditional deer are. This is real world data, folks. We harvested 1100 deer off that project. This is a lot of data. 
The third year, we had to go to the ultimate weapon. We went around in golf carts <laughs> because they see golf carts every single day and never associate them with danger, except once a month when we come in there at night with the toys and ride around. And we just use a golf cart like, you know, they're going to rent the next day. We couldn't get those all bloody. So we'd have, we would harvest deer, drag them to the fairway or whatever, and then have a pickup come around behind us to pick them up. And all of me got donated to charities and all that stuff. So don't give me a bunch of hate mail. It's all done right. right. <laughs> well, Grant, you know, Clint's talking about assessing how many does you need to harvest. And are you talking about just kind of setting a benchmark and then, and then learning from that? Let's say you're let's say you're a guy who's got a large acreage. Maybe you got several thousand acres, or maybe you're a member of a hunting club that has several thousand acres, and mm-hmm. you're trying to look at things. And you know, in the South, at least in Alabama, a lot of times your acreages are broken up into maybe hundred acre parcels, and you kind of sign mm-hmm. that sign that area out. Maybe it's got a food plot on it. Most of the time, maybe one or two food plots on it. If somebody goes in and let's say food plot number one, and they kill five does out of that food plot and then food plot number 30 on the other end of the property they don't kill any does are those the remaining deer are they going to filter in and find that browse naturally i mean do you have to worry about over harvesting in a small area no again i I almost never if legal means are used i almost never worry about over harvest unless it's paired with the disease you know you have a great big deer harvest and then that year you have a, the next year you have a really big EHD outbreak or something. I just don't worry about it because hunters are not going to put enough effort in. It's a lot of work to harvest deer, drag deer, eviscerate deer, either use the meat or give the meat away, whatever. It just so few people do that. The vast majority of the Whitetails range is overpopulated. The vast majority. Really? The vast majority. The vast majority. Make no mistake about it. The vast majority. There are some areas where coyotes are really hound and deer, you know, you know, a few issues, but those are exceptions. Those are not the rule. So I just don't worry about that. Deer have, to your question directly, deer have tremendous fidelity to their home range. And I think this is pretty easily explained. You know, we're here, man, I'm, I'm looking out my window right now, see if there's a deer in the food plot I can see from this window and you're watching it rain and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm totally at peace here. I don't, I'm not worried about anything. But if we were having this conversation, I was sitting in, you know, some cave in Afghanistan or something, I wouldn't be talking. I might whisper at best, get me the heck out of here, whatever. My guns are pointed. And deer are the same way. They have, again, this is based on thousands of deer with GPS collars over, over years, not just one year over time. They have tremendous fidelity to home range. And when they're out of their home range, they're either moving to a totally new home range, that's, you know, a year and a half old bucks, and some does tend to move. But it's a one-time move. They're just, just they're not just hopping all over. They they move and set up a new home range, and that's it. Now they will use different portions of their home range, and everyone kind of like me asking about, hey, what's land cost down there in general? Deer home ranges in general are about a mile, but deer are unique individuals, just like humans. I travel all over America working. I don't go to West Coast much, but other than that, I travel all the time. And I got buddies that haven't left the county here in thirty years. And deer are like that. Some deer move more than others. They're unique individuals. They're genetically, but in general, bucks home range will be about twice as big as a doe. And throughout the year, boy, acorns are falling. They're over here. And Joe's got an alfalfa field. He's over here. The soybeans are green. They're over there. But they just stay in their home range because they're scared to get out of their home range. They don't know all the thermals, how the thermals react, which is huge to deer, knowing how thermals react. 
They don't know that. They don't know where the coyote dens are. They don't know where the hunters are. Deer have tremendous comfort within their home range. Grant, I think I already know the answer to my next question. You were talking just now about as long as you're using legal means, you don't worry about about overharvest. But when it comes to the life cycle of a doe and gestation periods and things of that nature, what I want to ask you next is, is there a right or a wrong time to harvest does? And, and let's start out thinking about the early season, because one of the biggest objections I see from guys that, in killing a doe, and, and I felt this myself, I didn't used to feel it, but after having my first child, I feel it now, <laughs> you know, is killing a doe with a fawn, is that good or bad? Or how do you feel about that? I think you're asking, is that a death sentence to the fawn? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people feel is that like, you know, and I hear people say, well, I won't shoot a doe with a spotted fawn. Well, I won't shoot a doe with a fawn, period. I've been on all ends of the spectrum. I mean, when we were managing a property where the goal was to get mouths out of the woods, and I remember reading some research back in the day where it actually said that the best deer you could take was a fawn. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea behind the research was that it took more forage to get a fawn to adulthood than it did to keep an adult as an adult, I don't know if that's true. What do you think of harvesting does with fawns? Yeah, I'm, I'm a real simple person. So let's go back to the basics. If your goal is to reduce the amount of mouths out there, so the residual deer, the deer that survive, can express more their genetic potential to be healthier, then if your season opens October 1st, that's the first day you start shooting does. Mm-hmm. Because based on a lot of history doing this, we've been incorporated 30 years, 30 plus years. The vast majority of people I've assisted in every state that has whitetails never meet their doe harvest objective. Never meet their doe harvest objective. The, the biologist, whoever, whatever, the club, whatever, says, oh, we need to take 50 this year. What they get to 30, I call that good. Mm. And I bet you guys have similar experiences. For sure. So, and everyone says, here are the two common things I hear. You talk about what you hear. Here's what I say. Well, how do I know that doe's not going to produce the next big buck? And I say, it's very simple. Because if you leave that doe, there's not enough groceries. Bucks are not big because some genetic wizard did that. They're big because everything worked out just right and had ample groceries. And by the way, does carry 70% of the antler trait. So culling never works on bucks. Never. Unequivocally, never. Yeah, that's a whole other subject. But yeah. So given the fact that almost no one meets their doe harvest objective, and almost every state in America has been at least 20% behind in their doe harvest the last couple of years, you need to start day one to give yourself a chance of hitting your doe harvest objective. And everyone says, I don't want to spook a buck. Man, what if I shoot a doe and there's a buck coming? And I tell them 25% of the mature bucks in my lifetime that I've harvested have been out of the stand where earlier that hunt, that same hunt, not a week earlier, that same hunt, I'd already shot a doe because there is no better attractant for a deer than another deer. And deer don't look at death like humans. Most hunters think like, like they consider deer like humans. And we, you know, we're out in the woods, we see a dead human, we're getting the heck out of there most likely. Right. Uh, and, you know, and go and get law enforcement. Deer don't think of death like that at all. They don't even know what law enforcement is. They, and, and we have video after video after video, year after year after year, of one of me or one of our guys, my family, someone, will shoot a doe that morning or the early that afternoon, and 30 minutes later, an hour later, two hours later, they kill a buck, stand, a mature buck, standing over that doe. There is no better attractant than a dead doe. And it's not that she's dead. It's just a doe when she's right there in your shooting lane. And she's got all the natural smells. 
Yeah. Now, a, a three a three day old dead doe. Don't shoot a doe and say, "Well, I'll keep hunting this thing." Grant said, "I'm gonna hunt this for about a week." <laughs> that doesn't work. You know? Well, jumping back to assessment for a moment on the fawns, there's a common debate I hear a lot is that you see a lot of twins or twin sets with with those that it's an indicator of a healthy population. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know. Fawns production or antler production are, are really closely tied. So if you've got a lot of does having twins and a few having triplets, which is really common in Iowa, and if, if bucks live old enough, they have big antlers. If you're seeing a lot of singletons, unless there's a huge predator issue, your, your bucks, even though they may be nice antlers, they're not expressing their full genetic potential. And I think we've got lulled into this. Well, you know, in, in my area, people used to kill about 130 class deer. That's our genetic potential. That's almost never true, even in South Florida. It's just that's how old bucks live. And you mentioned with those that really just to start as soon as it's a season's in and it's legal to take one. Is there a period in the season you would suggest stopping, like after rut? No, I, I would stop taking those when I met my quota. Again, we're managing deer. We're not... We manage deer, so hunters do. Every time you pull the trigger or flip an arrow or you choose not to, you have made a deer management decision. And and it may be best to not shoot. Maybe, boy, you've got way more food than deer and you can let the population expand. Or it's a buck and and your goal, I'm not saying this is right, but your goal is to hunt larger antler deers. And maybe that that buck needs a, 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 a few more years on it or another year on it, or you've got way too few groceries out there. The poison ivy's browsed up four feet tall, five feet tall, and you pass a doe. You've made a very bad management decision, and you've impacted the health of that deer herd in a negative way. So, Grant, we're talking about when to harvest does, and obviously that is you harvest them until you're done. And one of the negative aspects that I hear all the time especially in areas like, like the South, where you have a lot of, a lot of food plot hunting, you know, a lot of guys sitting on food plots in the afternoons Mm -hmm. is, well, if you shoot does on a food plot, then you're not going to see bucks. And and they're, so they have a lot of places I've hunted have rules. You know, we don't, we don't shoot does on food plots. For example, you shoot a doe in the woods or you can shoot a doe on a, on a road or these types of practices. And the idea is that you create kind of a sanctuary for these deer and and then when when the rut kicks around you're going to have a, a easier place. So do you have any strategies that you would use and and whether or not that's true or not but do you have any strategies you use for doe hunting to minimize the pressure that killing all these does creates on your property? No. No, there is no good. Okay, so if you're in the timber 200 yards off that food plot and you shoot a doe and your wind's blowing towards the food plot, you, you heard it more than hunting on the edge of the food plot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's human saying, it's not, this really drives me nuts too. It's not the gunshot. Right. I would do some work for the government on military bases. And I have frequently seen in my career, you know, there's a shooting range, guys are shooting automatic weapons, there's maybe a hundred guys and they're all shooting. So there's thousands and thousands of shots going off. And 20 yards downwind of the firing range is 32 deer eating. And the reason they're always downwind is not human center thing because the predominant downwind side is going to have gun smoke blowing that way, powder blowing that way, and a big component of powder is nitrogen, so those plants are better fertilized. So your deer are almost always going to be on the downwind side 
of the rifle range eating. So deer are really simple. People try to make them like humans and we're really complicated. If you're hunting the food plot, whether you shoot a deer or not, but you're since blowing all over the food plot, you've already made that a bit more nocturnal. And remember, deer don't mind dead deer. So the, and, and they don't know what a gunshot is. They don't hear a gunshot and go, oh man, they're hunting today. That's not, it's just thundered really loud. Yeah. And I mean, how many times have you shot a deer with a rifle and then the rest of them just stayed around? You know, I mean, it happens Absolutely, all the time. Yeah. It's the human scent. It, it's human disturbance. It's not gunshots or dragging a doe out. Matter of fact, I tell this to my crew here. If you shoot a doe in the timber or, you know, early in the hunt, in the timber, in the food plot, in a bedding area, whatever, for goodness sake, don't get out of stand or blind and go move it. Then you're just putting human sin out there. You've right. learned the benefit of having that doe laying out there. We leave it till the hunt's over, you know, midday, after dark, whatever, and then go retrieve the doe. It really answers the question of, is there a good or a bad place to, to do your doe hunting? I mean, it, it doesn't sound like to me you just need to adhere by good hunting principles, managing your scent and managing your impact as opposed to where you kill the deer or is not really playing into it? Uh, you know, disturbance can make deer nocturnal anywhere, but it's a human disturbance, not harvesting dough. And let's just go back to, because everyone wants to find a wheel around this. I mean, literally, I've, I've faced this for decades. If your goal is to improve deer herd quality, that usually means more nutrition. And that means you're either improving the habitat or reducing the number of mouths. And if you're going to have a doe harvest, say, well, we're going to wait till after rut. I hear this all the time. Well, between when deer season opened and the rut, those does you're hoping to remove had consumed a lot of forage that could be there for, to help deer recover after the rut. So ideally, we say, well, we need to harvest 10 does this year, guys. Ideally, you killed all 10 the first day because then your goal is to improve the habitat, and it started right then, not when it's too late for plants to grow. Grant, you're talking about doesn't really sound like there's a good or a bad place to shoot a doe. Uh, it's just get them. But is there a good or bad doe to harvest? You know, I was talking about the research earlier that I read. I, I remember reading this, I don't know, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago they were talking about maybe that a, a fawn was, or a yearling, you know, not a spotted fawn, but a, a, uh, a deer under a year old was actually the best from a, uh, from a forage perspective to harvest. Is there any truth to that? Is there a better doe to harvest than another? Yeah. So if you're one of those very rare clubs or people that get their doe harvest every year, you might think about selecting or talk about pluses and minuses of either one. That's basically mature or immature deer is what we're talking there. If you're not getting your quota or you have a history of not getting your quota, work on getting your quota first. And then in following years, you might be a little more selective. There's not a lot of advantages to selecting. If we look at what God did or, you know, how nature works, fawns are going to be predated on or removed from the herd a lot more than prime health does. That just makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're replicating nature, we're, we're going to remove fawns. The problem with removing fawns for huh? And a predator, timber wolf, whatever, it doesn't care if it's a male or female fawn. It's just a little bit of meat. It's a little bit of protein package. But hunters don't want to harvest button bucks typically. And, and I advise against harvesting button bucks. You're going to get a few. If you're having an aggressive doe harvest, I tell people, if you've got a really aggressive doe harvest, probably 10% of your harvest may be button bucks. Any more than 10, you've probably been pretty careless. And any less, you might not be getting your doe harvest because you're so worried about 
someone accidentally harvesting a button buck. So 10% is just a rule of thumb number. There's no magic there. So first step, get your doe harvest. Second step, well, we, we've got this down. We get our doe, doe quota every year. Then, all right, younger deer, if you can sort out a button buck from a female fawn, that's tough to do. But if you can, you don't have as much invested in that half-year-old deer as you do a two-, three-, or four-year-old deer. So might be better take that. They're not taking near – deer eat a percentage of their body weight. And, and depending on where you are, that varies a little bit. Let's just say three, four, five, six percent of their body weight daily. So you've got a 100-pound deer. They're going to move five, six pounds of foliage a day. So if you're removing a 50-pound fawn, they're not removing near as much forage from your property, but in a few months, they will. So you're not really gaining a lot there. It's pretty short-sighted. Removing older does has more meat per deer harvested. If, if you know, enjoying venison is a big thing, you get more meat per trigger pool on an older doe. Older does tend to be really wise and know where the hunters are hunting. This has been shown by GPS scholars, and they can really teach not by now, sit down today, class is, they just show by example, we're walking here, we walk here. When this happens, we walk here. So some people that only harvest young deer, they get all these old does and makes their property really difficult to hunt. And obviously you don't harvest all the young deer, right? You would take out the whole age class, that almost never happens. So mm-hmm. there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Here at my property, I'm blessed, we have 2,400 acres. We have to harvest a lot of does every year. We, you ask when? I mean, our bow season starts September 15th. That's when our first doe hit the ground this year, that afternoon, September 15th, period. And that's usually when it happens every year. If I see a doe, you know, there's going to be this bell-shaped curve of when fawns are born. Some are born real early and lose their spots a little earlier. That's based on maturity. Some are bred really late. And if I see a doe that's got a little bitty old 25-pound fawn, no, I don't. I'm not saying it's bad biologically because you're just getting two does for one, but I don't have the heart to shoot that doe either. You know, I'm too old, too soft to do that anymore. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it's not just me. (laughs) It's not a biological thing. It's just a human thing, you know, and I I understand that. I I live it myself. But if it's got an average size fawn, even if it has a few spots or whatever, every state agency, and they'd be, you know, political outcasts if they didn't, they set the opening of their doe harvest season based on when the vast majority of fawns will survive. At about six weeks of age, fawns are functional ruminant. You know, if they're not, they're hopefully still getting milk, but if they're not getting milk, they're going to survive by eating just vegetation. So it's, it, that's not as big as concern. It's more of a concern for our heartstrings than it is that. But every state sets their deer harvest where the vast majority, except those really late bred does, their fawns are big enough to survive, no problem. Timing isn't as important, again, not trying to be a repeated record, as getting your harvest and which does to harvest. I, I myself would prefer to harvest those older nannies that have bust me 40 times and taught other deer how to bust me. I'd rather get those out of herd. And one last thing, and this is really micro small, micro, micro small. I hesitate to even mention it, but if you're actively improving your deer herd, you're letting more older bucks survive, more bucks survive to maturity and you're really reducing the number of does and you got stuff going on, you may nudge that genetic needle ever, ever so slightly, ever so slightly. And I want to stop right here and say that I I attended a big deer workshop for a bunch of biologists at Texas A&M years ago. 
And the big stud geneticist at the time got up to give talk, but I thought, man, we're going to learn about deer genetics now, finally. We're going to learn how to do this thing. And this was his opening line. I'll never forget it. So today I'm here to talk about genetics. Now, I can give my seminar in three words, nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. Yeah. And I mean, nutrition, like you said, it's a function of if you're not creating more nutrition, more habitat, you're reducing the herd so that the available habitat is, is more available for the remaining herd. Yeah, it's a balancing act. You balance the amount of mouths to the amount of quality forage that habitat can produce year-round on a sustained basis year after year. So it's just, And a deer herd, one thing we should throw in there, a really healthy deer herd, not all deer herds is healthy, but a really healthy deer herd will replace itself by about a third each year or a third of that population will be fawns. So you can see, even on a semi-healthy, maybe you're having 20% fawns, 20% of your deer herd's fawns, and you don't harvest does, that deer herd rapidly breeds out of the capacity for that habitat to produce quality browse rapidly. I'm going to put you on the spot, Grant. Do you guys meet your doe harvest goals every year? My doe, my goals are pretty aggressive, and some years we do and some we don't. But it's not for a lack of trying. It's because <laughs> we've hunted our property for so many years, it's tough to kill does here. Yeah, I, I will tell you this. Two-year-old bucks walk around dumb as a rock because we don't shoot two-year-old bucks, yearling bucks here. They have zero pressure. And they're just lollygag. And I've seen this on multiple properties. When we were harvesting the pile of deer at some of these other projects, and maybe some of them said, no, don't harvest bucks, harvest does or whatever. You get frustrated. You're seeing these really nice two- and three-year-old bucks just walking around. You could, you know, you could whack them with a ping-pong paddle because they never have been pressured. They never have learned to associate humans with danger, ever. But if you really put pressure on does, and does are smarter, right? Bucks are taking care of themselves. Does are raising fawns. They have a smaller home range on average, so they know every tree, twig, thermal better. And they're trying to take care of someone else. So they're, they're really sensitive to hunting pressure once you start putting that pressure on them. Well, if you ask my wife, she would definitely say the does are smarter. <laughs> you know, I, uh, but you're talking about taking care of that little one. I've also heard over the years, a lot of guys say that an older doe is a, a better mother. She's going to do a better job of keeping her fawn safe. And uh, is there any truth to that, you think? I mean, obviously, we, we want to meet those goals, like you said, but we're talking about optimizing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it's tough to tell a four-year-old doe from a six-year-old doe just looking at them. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, the, the, typically the, the most fit, and it may not be the oldest, but the most fit, which is usually in does based on body weight. So you got this magnum 170-pound doe out there, which is realistic, folks, if you've never seen one. Biggest doe I've ever drugged was 195 pounds. And no, I didn't drug it. Four of us drugged it. But they can get big and, you know, where there's good food and they get old. And, and, but those big, biggest boss does will fawn in the best areas. And you're saying, what's well, a good area to fawn? where there's food cover and water really close and no predators. And the younger does are usually fawn in, you know, in your yard or in less desirable areas. Mm -hmm. So yes, older, more mature does still, and before they get senile will probably be better mothers. If your goal is to reduce the number of mouths out there, is that worth protecting? Right. That's going to vary property to property. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about meeting those goals because I, I, from what I've heard today, the biggest challenge is is really just meeting your harvest goal. And, and I've, I'm with you. I've maybe been a part of a 
couple of places that were able to actually attain the harvest goals and it was definitely not consistent. How do you get buy-in when you're working with a landowner and you're running up against a lot of these different feelings about taking does or you get these, well, we're going to wait until after the rut and we're going to have a doe weekend or what, whatever it is, you know, how do you get buy-in and how can you make this, I've always said, you know, just make it, making it fun, but, but really just getting it done. You got any strategies for that? Yeah, there's on anything like this, training a dog, whatever, there's, there's really two strategies, pain or reward. And pain is you don't, and I've used both. I'm not saying either one's good or bad. Pain sounds horrible, but I've had projects where we had to move a certain number of deer. And say, okay, until you bring your fifth doe in, you can't use your buck tag. That's the pain side. And I don't care if you kill your five does the first day or the last day of season. And ours, usually in a club situation where we're managing or whatever, it carries over. Okay, you only got three does this year. You owe me two to start it next year. And people all of a sudden start saying, well, daggum, I need to kill some does or I don't get to use my buck tag. That works pretty effectively. And, and there's always exceptions for first-time hunters or people over 80 or the consulting biologists. No, I'm teasing on that one. <laughs> But we, we tell first-time hunters, you know, man, I don't, I don't care what you shoot. You just have fun and be safe. And we tell our, our more mature members, you know, that have done their time uh, or certainly someone that might have a disability or something, man, we're here for you to have fun, whatever that takes, whatever that means for you, as long as it's safe. But the other guys, you know, the, the 99% of the crowd there, it's either, again, pain, which is typically – you have to harvest said number of deer, what is appropriate for that area, and the number of people participating uh, before you could utilize that buck tag or reward. If you harvest X number of deer, you're rewarded by a, a you know, the club kicks in and gets a, a gift card, or you know, you get to hunt anywhere you want, or you get to hunt the big food plot, or whatever it is. It's a, it's just exactly like training dogs or training kids. Uh, there's a great book out uh, about training kids called Love and Logic. And the same thing's true for managing about any population of humans. It's either pain or it's reward. And I prefer reward where that works. But hunters tend to be hard-headed, and sometimes you got to take them to the woodshed to get them to do what's right. One of my favorite tactics that I've seen employed on a, uh, this was on a, a hunting club, another thing that can be tough to get members to do is show up for work days. And mm -hmm. this club, actually, part of your dues, you actually got paid the day that you came to a work day. So mm -hmm. <laughs> they would take your dues from you. Uh, and then when you when you showed up for the work day, you got 100 bucks. And if you didn't show up mm -hmm. for the work day, mm -hmm. you didn't get 100 bucks. And I've always yeah. thought that that would be a, a good strategy to either pull that, pull that money uh, or do the same thing with dough harvest to say, hey, look, everybody that brings a dough to the dough to the shed gets a $20 bill or something like that, you know, if you're yeah, having whatever a hard time. It, you know, yeah, yeah. But, uh, or just have fun with it, you know? Yeah, have fun. I'm like, I've got a buddy that has an 800 acre property not too far from me, and he's a great guy and has a lot of guests come hunt. And his rule is first-time hunters can shoot, you know, whatever makes them happy. Or you can help, on, but the other people can help on his work days, or you can chip into the kitty a little bit. And it's, again, it's all in fun. It's not like, you know, communist rule or something but when it, he's trying to get his doe harvest every year and not harvest button buck so if you harvest a button buck you have to wear this horrible pink hat horrible 
every minute you're in the clubhouse, you have to wear this pink hat until someone else harvests a button buck. So that, you know, that may be a year or it may be two days. You don't know. And, and there's no money changing hands for someone to harvest a button buck, but that incentive is probably more than say, well, you owe the club a hundred dollars to go towards a food plot program. Yeah. So there's all, I think you got to look at every crowd, every group of people and figure out, you know, if they're all flying in a Learjet to get there to hunt, then it's maybe $5,000 of, you know, or whatever. And if <laughs> right. you're like me and you're showing up in an old pickup that tires are bald, it's a different system that works. So that's right. You just, Pick what motivates your hunters, the hunters on that project. And it may be the old uh, peer pressure board, I call them, where, you know, you got a picture of so-and-so up here with the too young a buck or whatever. It's the old peer pressure thing. I love it. Lots of fun stuff to be done if you just, be, you can be creative with it. And you can definitely make it fun and just definitely get more people involved too. Mm-hmm. You know, having, having a doe weekend is not a bad idea. Get a bunch of get a bunch of folks in the woods and, and invite some folks up and let that, that's the focus of your time. And you can get it done. You definitely can get it done, but it doesn't, it's not without some effort. That's for sure. I would like to kind of close out with, I'd like to say one last thing here. COVID has changed the game and a lot of things. I think it will change the game on doe harvest. You know, this spring, there were record numbers of turkey hunters in several states, including several Southern states. I mean, guys were working, they were home, whatever they could go turkey hunting. Some of those states have a declining turkey population, and the agency wasn't necessarily wanting a record harvest, but that's what happened in some areas. And I look for the same in in deer, much easier to manage, more recoverable than turkey populations. But I think there's going to be a really big deer harvest this year, and I think it will help gain some ground for the last couple of years on the doe side. Because there's going to be a lot of new hunters, and when I say new hunters, not you know not our kids, but people that just haven't hunted before. They're wanting a, a, a source of healthy, secure meat. We had some meat scares this year, meat supply scares. Uh, outdoor recreation is at an all-time high. No matter if it's kayak sales, you know, whatever, they're, they're setting records like crazy, like crazy. So I think there's going to be a very large deer harvest this year. And I think for clubs out there, you could probably go a long ways towards helping families, making people happy, making gun ownership and hunting and all the things have a better support base by inviting some of these people that are first-time hunters. Hey, man, you want some venison for your family? Come to our club. We're trying to, you know, do some management, phrase it appropriately, remove some does, and we'd love your help, and we're going to help you achieve that. And introduce someone to hunting and, and help meet your management objectives at the same time. Great idea. Well, Grant, it's always a pleasure having you on here, man, and and sharing your decades of knowledge with us. And I know I'm going to be looking forward to having you back on again soon and and talking about another topic of management. You talked about it earlier in the show, but if folks want to keep tabs on what you're doing on the proven grounds and follow you at Growing Deer, where do you like to point them? And, you know, I don't really care. Just Google growing deer. And some people like to screen it on their big TV at home and they use those apps, like again, like Roku and Apple TV and other people want to watch it on their phone. And YouTube's great for that. Just search on growing deer and you'll find us. All right, Grant. Well, good luck with the rest of your fall and, and we'll, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for the opportunity, guys. Be safe. Clint, I always love having Grant on here. That guy's just he knows it. You don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder if he's got the answer. He's got the answer. What do you, what'd you take away from today for your place and doe hunting? Made me feel a little better that I wasn't screwing something up because I wasn't doing it right. Sounds like the biggest piece of advice he could give you is just get out there and do it.
do it in the least intrusive manner you can do it. But other than that, the, the main thing is just to get it done if, if it needs doing. I've got a client that really focuses on the older does, like he mentioned, for the same reason that he mentioned that they're the the wise teacher. And uh, he, he really believes and he gets a better effect doing that. And, and I try to do that. But at the same time, I'm like Grant said, the main thing is just get it done. You can focus on the precision of it later. Right. Yeah. How's your place looking? Are you in need of uh, aggressive doe harvest? You know, we were talking earlier just about how, from what I've seen around the state of Alabama, it's not as overpopulated as it used to be with terms in terms of total number of deer seen, but the habitat has changed a lot. Habitat when you and I were young kids is really a lot different when you think about pine plantations and the amount of agriculture that's out there. So even though the, the deer numbers may not seem as high anecdotally from what we're observing in the field, I know they're not where I'm hunting. The f- available forage may also not be as high. What do you see right there around the black belt? It depends, as we always say, but I think with if you're in an area that's got a, a lot of understory management, controlled burn, uh, herbicide treatments, things like that, I think that increases the amount of habitat and forage out there. Uh, where it's managing that sweet gum and things like that that he mentioned that was predating on the natural forage that the deer are looking for. We get a lot of benefit from that that people don't realize uh, when they're really focused on, you know, how hard are they hitting the food plots when they're not really considering how hard are they hitting the property as a whole. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing the numbers that I did when I was a kid. I've been hunting the same piece of property since I was five years old. So I've had the benefit of watching it for 35 years now. So did you say 35? I thought you were going to say 25, Clint. Oh, you just told on yourself, but I digress. Yeah, no, you don't <laughs> You don't get a face like this over 25 years. Um, but uh, anyway, but it's, we're seeing a lot bigger deer. I don't see the numbers, but we're still seeing plenty of deer. But as far as how many we should take every year, that's always a debate, you know, the family-friendly argument and all that kind of stuff. So we, we I think we're falling within the normal regimen of what, what Grant advised, but without being overly aggressive. So I'm happy with what we're doing. But now that I know what I know from today's show, I'm going to be more focused on those things and look for the red flags that are the real indicators, not just the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to walk past a green briar. You know, normally I'm looking at green briar, just trying not to get hung up in it. Now I'm going to be looking at it going, I wonder how the or how the doe population's doing here, or the deer population's doing here. Man, that was That's really right. cool, too. He's talking about the parasites. That was what I really learned. That was the one thing that just stood out to me. I thought that was such a cool correlation that those deer having more parasites means they're feeding closer to ground, which means that there's not as much available habitat. I thought that was just such a really just smart observation. Like I say, just really cool to have him on and and get to share in, in those decades of knowledge. But folks, that is going to wrap it up. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Huntland Podcast. And please be sure to subscribe. And if you'll just take a minute, wherever you listen to podcasts and drop us a review, a an actual written review as opposed to a just checking the stars really helps the show. If you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate you taking a second to leave a review. And if you want to get this podcast emailed to you each week, like so many are, you can just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377 and you'll join our weekly email. Clint, that's going to wrap it up for me, man. Good luck in the woods and uh, I'll talk to you 
next week. And, folks, we'll, we'll talk to you guys again next week. Y'all stay safe out there. This week's Sunland Podcast is brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty celebrates the traditions of hunting and fishing so deeply embedded in the folks who get to call the Alabama Black Belt home and the folks who enjoy. It's got unbelievable writing from award-winning writers, excellent photography, and some really awesome recipes. If you want to pick up a copy, just go over to the Alabama Black Belt Adventures website at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. And also brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.